Also, want to want to say today, want to want to celebrate. And I don't know. I know several were in the first service, but if you um, if you have served in our community garden this year, would you would you stand right now for just a minute? Uh, if you served in the community garden, I, several in the first service. So I get if you're not in here, like uh, they all hang. Maybe, oh, there we go. There's two. By the way, Lucas is standing. Just so you know that. Um, So we're hopeful for Lucas because he said he wants to take over the garden. He's just got a few more years. He's got to get through school first. So that's, um, we're hoping for that. But, but here's what we've also noticed. Like, I just want to celebrate. I noticed um, before church today, there were a couple guys who were looking. So let me see your knuckles. So thank you to the men and women who helped um, tear out the carpet in the gym last week. You know, I was hopeful there'd be more than three of us. Otherwise, it'd been a really long time. But thank you for all those who are part. And, um, you know, the smart ones were the women because they wore gloves. Uh, there were a few women who were there, and they were wearing gloves. I'm like, yeah, smart. Like, I was like, I got blisters, and I'm bleeding, and like, okay, not as smart. So there you go. Um, but but tonight, when last my last like announcement, whatever uh, commercial, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you are a guy here and you want to learn to better invest in young people um, tonight, especially if you're a parent, um, I would encourage you to come at 6:30 tonight. Um, we have a four-week study beginning tonight on what it looks like to be an, an intentional father. And so we have a panel each week of different guys will rotate and kind of talk about kind of veteran dads who've, who've done stuff before, talk about what they've done well and what they've not done well, because we think it's, it's good to learn from both things. And I think sometimes vulnerability as dads is hard to do. So I hope you'll be here tonight at 6.30. Love to have you come be a part of that tonight at 6.30, right here in this room. Um, so we'll be here tonight for that. Um, so I was thinking about how, as we think about in this room, in this space, sometimes, are there like special spaces in your life? Spaces with, that you think about and you're like, that, that's a special place, right? Maybe, maybe it was a place where you hit your first home run. Uh, maybe it's a place where you had your first kiss. Maybe it's a place where you asked someone to marry you. Or maybe it's a place where you said no to someone who asked you to marry them. Um, whatever it might be, right? All those things happen in particular places. And so I, I was thinking about, as I grew up, um, there, there's a place when I go visit my parents and I'm driving to their house, I go out of my way about a half mile every single time I go home the first time. Now, if I've been in town, I don't do it the second time, but like when I, I go out of the way, I drive by a park. And here's why I drive to the park. As many of you know, I, I played tennis in college, and so this is the court where I really learned how to play. And so I drive by, it's a public park, and I, and I drive by, and I always look at like what shape are the courts in, are they taking care of them? I'm a little bit sad right now because they've turned two of them, there were four, they turned two into like an outdoor soccer space. I don't know what it is. I'm just not happy about it, but I have no say. Uh, I don't even live there. Um, but, but it's a, kind of a special place for me, right? Um, or I could talk about at our high school, there was a, like the number one tennis court has a special place for me, and not just because I played there, but it, but it has a special place because when I graduated college or high school, my dad wanted a, a lesson, a tennis lesson. He's like, I want to kind of learn to play. You guys all play. I, I don't want to play. So I go give him a lesson, and I, I shared something kind of vulnerable with him, and it meant a pivotal moment in my life. And my dad walked across, he walked, because he's six foot four, so he didn't have to jump, but he's kind of walked over the net and came in and gave me a big hug. And my dad's not a hugger, so this moment kind of stands out in my mind. Um, and so I was thinking about moments, like these are pivotal moments, special places, things happened. Um, and I was thinking how many of them are nostalgic, or we have fond memories, but, but they're moments that have radical impact on our life. And here's why I think for some of us, sometimes that's good. And sometimes those spaces are bad. But here's the reality. Spaces have significance. In fact, I would say there are other kinds of spaces. I would call them holy spaces. I just spent some time with my family um, yesterday and the day before. It was for my grandfather's 85th birthday. And, and um, 
there's a space in their church um, right off the gym. It's a space where I was seven years old and I gave my life to follow Jesus. Always has a little special place for me. Or there's a spot, right? My dad's at the back corner back there. Um, and, and so he still, I mean, for like the last 55 years, he sat in the back corner. He still sits in the back corner. And, um, but there's a spot at the altar, because we sat back there with my dad more often, but there's a spot at the altar at my parents' church that I, as a teenager, went numerous times because I knew there was a way God was calling me to live, and there was a way I was living, and they didn't always line up. And so that's a special place for me. Or I was thinking about how, how maybe um, it will begin to recognize that, that even though these spaces have become special for us, there are other spaces over time, right? Right, right down the road from here is Eagle Alloy, and um, it's just a business in the area, but I, I ran along that road, uh, along, along Evanston, and, and um, I, for whatever reasons, I mean, maybe it's because I was just really tired, but it's a spot where often I would stop and kind of be overwhelmed by something God was trying to speak to me, and I would kind of just cry right there on the side of the road. Or I, or I could talk about this summer, how I, I was on sabbatical and I was praying that, God, you'd have this like, pivotal moment in my life where like, you'd just do something so awesome that it would just blow me away. And you'd speak in some way, and I know it was you. And I kept praying and praying that that would happen. It, by the way, it, it didn't. This story isn't about the closest I got. Um, and I went to like, some pretty cool places, and still, God didn't show up in those places in the way I was wanting him to. But I was driving south of Sarasota on I-75, um, construction in all six lanes and it's a mess and I'm listening to Beth Moore's memoir and she's sharing the scripture from Isaiah where God says to Isaiah who will go and who will I send and Isaiah says here am I send me and in that moment I I kind of cried there in the car because I felt like God said hey um, are you still willing to go where I call you like well yeah okay like that was that's that was it like that was the the moment of but it was just in a car right like here's the reality for us these moments I would say it this way. We could call them this. Holy moments are often connected with holy spaces. Right? Last week, we were pulling the carpet out of the gym um, after church, and um, we're in there, and, and Lee Schulte, he's a little bit older than I am, um, or like more than double my age, um, but, but Lee was down on the floor, like, trying to get this carpet on the floor, and like, he couldn't really bend over very well. I was like, hey, Lee, my back's better than yours. I got this. And so I pulled up this piece of carpet, we started talking for a second, I looked at Lee and I just said, oh, this week I'm going to Indian Lake Nazarene Camp uh, for a pastor's workshop for a couple days, like I know how much that place means to you, I just thought I'd tell you. And he's like, oh. And all of a sudden he gets all teary-eyed and he goes, "Um, that place is sacred. And then he said something that was so good. And if he hadn't said this part, I would have left that out. He said, there's nothing special about those buildings. And he's right. I've been there. There's nothing special about those buildings. He goes, but, but it's sacred. And he's right. right. Like, there's buildings. Like, there's nothing, nothing amazing about them. They're just, they just are what they are. And, and so here's where I have to kind of confess to you today. Um, I grew up in, and some of you did as well, I'm kind of a rebellious generation when it comes to some things in church. Um, and so I'm including some of the boomers and the the Gen Xers and the Millennials and like kind of really all that generations like are kind of rebellious. And here's what I mean. Like, right. Um, I don't think, I think we're good in this room today right now. We were earlier, so I gotta be careful. I can, I can be less careful. Um, I don't see any suits and ties in this room, but when I was like first in church as a kid, everybody kind of wore suits and ties, or at least you dressed up. Like I, I didn't wear shorts to church. Like you could, when we were little, like we had a rule in our house. When you hit 12, you'd wear pants to church. 
It is what it is. You had to wear pants to church, and then you couldn't wear jeans on Sunday mornings, but you could wear them Sunday nights. Don't ask me where these rules came from. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And so um, I'm part of a rebellious generation who's like, this is a bad idea. And, and also we began to realize not everybody owns suits and ties, so you don't have to dress up. It's just okay. We want people to feel welcome and invited. And, and so we recognize, like, we, we want you to wear clothes, right? That's good. So um, we're glad you're here and all those kind of things. And so we kind of rejected some of those kind of things. Like, we don't, we don't need to dress up for church. God loves me where I am every day. And if I don't dress up every day, why would I dress up for there? Anyway, I don't care what you wear, by the way. Um, dress up, don't dress up. You're welcome either way. But here's the reality. Um, in our rejection of some of those things, my generation would also say things like this. There's no sacred space. And you're like, but here's why. Because every space is sacred. There's no place you go where God's presence is not already there. Now, I 100% believe that, by the way, and I'm a massive advocate for that. But, but here's what gets lost in that if we embrace that in some ways that can be unhealthy. Um, in fact, we're rediscovering, right, you can read books all about like creating prayer spaces in your homes or like a, a special chair where you pray or maybe you set your Bible and read. Like I read from the same spots outside until it drops below 40 degrees and then I can't do it because that's just too cold. Um, but, but we find spaces and they become for us kind of sacred spaces. But, but what makes them sacred isn't that, that they're just like so beautiful and maybe that could be part of it, but here's the reality. Um, those sacred spaces are, are sacred because we encounter God there, right? We have holy moments, and here's how we'll define holy moments. Holy moments are encounters with God that leave us changed. Holy moments are moments with God that leave us changed. And here's the reality. Um, God wants all of us to have holy moments. It is not reserved for great spiritual giants or people in the scriptures. It is for every single person on the face of this earth. God desires for them to have holy moments, moments with God that leave us changed. Right, we've been talking about uh, the journey of God's people, and some of you kind of figured it out, right? We're literally walking through the journey I took this summer, going through the stories and spaces and places. And, and, and so here's what we're, we've talked about. We talked about Abraham uh, and Joseph. We talked about how Abraham had this pivotal moment. He made a turn. And he began to follow after God with his life. We talked about Joseph, how, how he was really faithful, but yet he kind of got wayward towards the end and what some of the decisions he made led to the, the slavery of God's people. And now we pick up the story with Moses. And Moses, if there's one character in the Old Testament, one person who's most instrumental, it's him. But his story doesn't begin like most of our stories. His story begins in an interesting way. In fact, it begins with a story that's loosely connected to him, but it's one of the best stories in all the Bible. And here's this story. So the Israelites, they're enslaved, and Pharaoh decides he's going to make their life difficult because they keep multiplying. The Israelites keep getting larger. There's more people. And he's like, okay, enough of this. I'm threatened by them, so we're going to oppress them and enslave them. In fact, the scripture says he deals with them ruthlessly. But here's what we find from Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Best answer in the Bible right here. The midwife answered Pharaoh. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. 
So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I love the story of Shifra and Pua. It's like, man, we're more scared of God than we are of you. So, hey, Pharaoh, every time we show up, those babies are already out. I'm like, I've been to a couple deliveries. That is not how that works. So um, Pharaoh obviously never saw any of his children born. Um, but that leads us to the story of Moses. You know, like, how does the story of Shifra and Pua not killing baby boys lead to the story of Moses? Because Moses' mother had him. And for three months, she hid him away. At the end of three months, she couldn't hide him any longer. She puts him in a basket in the Nile River. I've seen the Nile River. This is a crazy thing to do. And so Moses' sister walks along, follows this basket, sees Pharaoh's daughter come out to bathe with her servants, and there she is. And Moses begins to cry inside the basket. And Pharaoh's daughter, she's not cold-hearted. She hears a crying baby. She gets crying baby. Oh, this is one of those Hebrew babies, because I know my dad wants them all killed. And she she grabs the baby and she takes it in and she begins to look at it. And, and then Moses' own sister says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, do you, oh, you're going to keep this baby. I'm guessing they have a little more conversation we have in the scriptures. I'm going to keep this baby. And so Moses' uh, sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, well, do you want me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby? Because obviously you didn't get birth, so you can't nurse the baby. Do you want me to get someone who can? And so she says, well, yeah, here's what the scripture says. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Did you catch that part of the story? It's a pretty cool part of the story. Moses' own mother got paid to nurse him. All of you who have been mothers in this room are like, that would be awesome. Not how it works in the rest, for the rest of us, but she had to give him up. And so Pharaoh is raised, or I'm sorry, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. And I can't imagine what that's like, right? Because he would probably know he's a Hebrew, or at least would figure it out, right, at some point. And, and he would feel less than in Pharaoh's house because I'm not an Egyptian. And he would feel like an outcast to the Hebrews because he's not like them, right? He's living in Pharaoh's house. And for all of us, we want to know where we came from, what, what our family's like, what our origins are. And so Moses is no different. And so I can imagine that he's wrestling with all these emotions that would come of growing into that, of becoming like, it's, I don't know, one of the things we're talking about these next four weeks tonight. Like, what's it look like to help write a passage for young men to become men? And so how do we do that as parents or fathers? How do you do that? So Moses is wrestling with all these things because he doesn't have his dad. And Pharaoh, I'm guessing it's a short leash for him. And Moses doesn't know what to do with this. And so he walks out among the Hebrews thinking about all these things. Here he is, a prince of Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's household. Well-fed, well-dressed, adopted into the royal family, but knows he doesn't really belong. And only because of what was going on is he here. And so he's out walking one day. And he sees the suffering of the Hebrews, his people. And he can't contain his frustration and his anger. And here's what we find in the text from Exodus 2, 11 and 12. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. 
he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, it's an interesting moment in the life of Moses. Um, he's putting his future in jeopardy, because here's why. I, I can only imagine that he's raised in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh would have known where he came from. My guess is he would say to his daughter, that boy of yours, he's welcome here so long as he stays in line. So long as he does what he's supposed to do, so long as he behaves as a good Egyptian does, as long as he doesn't act like the Hebrew that he is, he's welcome in this home. But the minute he doesn't act like that, he is not welcome here. And Moses probably knows this about Pharaoh, and so he doesn't want to get caught, so he hides the body. By the way, here's a side note from this story. People are always watching. What we think we do in secret will almost always be found out. And that brings us back to the text. Verse 13. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. <clears throat> Who made you ruler and judge over us? Moses knows that he's now known, and what he did has become common knowledge. And he knows what Pharaoh is going to do to him. In fact, it says Pharaoh tries to kill him, and so he runs away. Into the wilderness he runs, to a place called Midian. And he's there, and he finds himself at this well. And there are these seven sisters who come to this well, and some shepherds come to kind of mess with them. And Moses runs them all off, because, you know, Moses is mostly a good guy. He didn't see people in trouble, and so he runs them all off. And then uh, the girls go home, and they tell their dad, hey, some Egyptian, so he must have still looked like an Egyptian. Some Egyptian... Like, just saved us at the well. Like, it was a, Dad, we went to the well, we just mind our own business, and, and this guy showed up, and, and he saved us. And the dad goes, well, you know, did you invite him home for dinner? We're like, well, no. We told you, we just met a stranger at the well. We didn't invite him home. But in that culture, even to this day, um, hospitality is considered a, a thing that matters, and it's important. And so you would have definitely have invited someone home. And so the girls go back, and they invite him home. And Jethro is the, <clears throat> the priest's name. And... Next thing we know, the priest gives his daughter Zippor to marry Moses. By the way, I have a daughter, and there's no way if you save her from a well one day, I'm going to let you marry her the next. It's not probably going to happen. Right? It's probably not exactly how that story happened, but that's what it says. So we don't really know how long it was between those two things. But Moses and Zipporah do what often happens with young couples. They begin to have a family. And they have children. And they build a life together. And this is what happens where we begin to recognize that God often calls many of us when we least expect it, when we're going through our everyday activities, doing what we normally do. But what we begin to recognize is God has never forgotten his people. God has never forgotten or not known or not seen what's happening to them. And here's what we find in Exodus 2.23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears the cries of his people. But notice, it doesn't mean that God's people will never suffer. 
Sometimes we think if we choose to follow after Jesus that we'll never experience suffering or heartache in our life. And that's just not true. But what God does promise is he will work for us to come to know what freedom looks like. And so we talk about the Israelites being freed. It's the most pivotal moment of the Old Testament. We'll talk about it next week. But where they are freed from Egypt, from slaves, from oppression, they are set free. It's why, even in the New Testament, Jesus offers this picture of what it looks like for us to know true freedom, even from our sins, so we don't have to be held captive to the things that hold us in bondage. And so Moses is doing what Moses does. He is out working, doing his everyday tasks. But God has remembered these people. And we see this scene, and i, I got to be honest with you. Um, I love God, and I love that God loves me. I love that God loves you. I think it's great. But I, I will never understand at some level why God works the way God works. And here's what I mean. He uses people to do his work in the world. Have you met people? They're not always good. They don't always do helpful things. They're sometimes not nice. Like, they're critical and angry and mean, and they're short, right? They just, I don't mean, like, height-wise, although that, too, right? I mean, they're just, like, it's, it's just frustrating. By the way, we took a family picture yesterday. It was really funny. One of my cousins said, um, like, they go, hey, can you stand behind your wife? He goes, I can't stand behind my wife. She's taller than me. You won't see me in the picture. So, like, okay, fair. All right, sorry, man. Um, anyway. But God uses people. In fact, here's what you see in the text, beginning with, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, doing his job. The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place we are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses is doing his everyday activity. He normally is working. He's at his job. And he has an encounter with God. And the truth is, I think that's how most often we have our encounters with God. It's in our everyday activity of our life. It's the normal things we're doing. And he sees this particular sight. He sees a bush that is on fire but is not burning up. I know, crazy story. By the way, here's a picture of what is are you, that is that particular bush. You can go to it right now. It's inside, inside St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt. By the way, again, just a bush. It's just a bush. But if God's presence shows up, if God shows up in the middle of that, all of a sudden it becomes something radically different. My wife loves the line because it says, take your shoes off. 
right? I'm not supposed to wear my house in the shoe, my shoes in the house. Maybe you like that too. But Moses has this encounter with God in this holy moment. And he's listening to God say, I, I see what's going on among my people. I see they're oppressed. I see they're enslaved. And Moses, here's how I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send you. And Moses feels incredibly inadequate. He's like, I'm a murderer. Like, probably don't want to send me. I ran from home, right? Like, I, you don't want to send me. And I got to be honest with you, I, I get it, because maybe you felt inadequate before too. Have you ever just felt inadequate? Even this summer, as I was traveling some of the places in the Middle East, and I was hearing some of these stories in the scriptures, again, I'm going, I've read the Bible, I don't know, dozens of times, and I don't remember this story or that person, and they know their names? Whoa. Or yesterday, we had a family gathering for my grandfather's birthday, and we did, like, teams, like, right, you, you had teams and bandanas, and you know, split up, and you're keeping score, and, and so you were on a team, and they did trivia was part of the things, like Disney trivia, terrible, by the way, did not get any of those right. But then they did Bible trivia, and they're like, oh, you know, Aaron and Grandpa, my grandfather's a pastor, and they're like, oh, you guys have an advantage. And I'm like, oh, man, I better not get any wrong. I did, by the way. Right? Like, it's like the pressure. Like, I'm feeling inadequate even in the middle of this. So here's the reality. When you feel inadequate, you're not alone. All throughout the scriptures, God used people who felt inadequate in some way, shape, or form, or literally were inadequate, but, but by the grace of God, he used them. And so here's what we find next in the scripture, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am who I am, or in New Testament language, you say the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so here's the reality. In the middle of his inadequacy, God says to him, you may be a murderer, you may not feel like you're eloquent enough, but I'm still going to use you. If you'll say yes to me, I'll still use you. I mean, I get it. If you're Moses, you like, still want to question. You're like, I don't know about this. I mean, you know, I did see a burning bush that didn't burn up. Because, I mean, we maybe rip bushes out of our front yards and burn them in our backyards. Like, that happens all the time. But, but I've never lit a bush on fire um, that didn't actually burn up. Unless, like, you know, I did the fire went out and then I could burn it again, right? But it's never kept burning and not, that's just crazy, right? That doesn't happen. And then God says, well, hey, Moses, like, so that you know that I'm serious about this, take your staff, like your stick, and throw it on the ground. It became a snake. By the way, I would not love this. He says, Moses, grab it by the tail. I'm like, well, of course, God, you don't grab a snake by the mouth. That's a terrible idea. So he grabs it by the tail. Becomes a staff again. So, okay, Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses puts his hand inside his cloak, comes out. It's leprous. Definitely wouldn't like that. And God goes, okay, now put it back in. It comes back out. It's clean. And God's like, you got it yet? And Moses' like, you know, God, um, it's pretty cool you're showing these things to me, but I'm not a great communicator. 
Um, like I, I stutter. And so even though I've been raised in Pharaoh's household, even though I've been well-educated, I think you should send someone else. Like, here am I, but send my brother Aaron. Like, God, I appreciate it. I think you're great. Um, but you should send someone else. Like, he'd be better. And God's kind of irritated this time. You know, it's like, I don't think so. I'm going to send you. But I'll tell you what, I'll let your brother Aaron come with you. He's like, oh, okay. So Moses prepares to go back to Egypt, and we'll talk about that story next week. But here's the reality of this particular story. In the middle of his inadequacy, in the middle of like feeling like he can't do it, what he's come to recognize is he begins to have these encounters with God, these holy moments, which he is radically changed in the middle of. He becomes more and more aware of the very presence of God so that these spaces that are just spaces, by the way, they're nothing flashy. It's the bush. It's just the wilderness. But when God shows up there, something happens. But it's but but again, we talked about it earlier. It's not that God showed up; it's we're aware of God's presence. Moses becomes more and more aware of the presence of God, and God sends him to free people who are captive. They let the oppressed free. It actually sounds a whole lot like. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 when he says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you guys sent Moses, but he also wants to send you and I. Wherever you are right now, Whatever your daily life looks like, God wants to use you in that, in that particular place, in that particular sphere. And many of us want to respond, like I think if a teenage boy would respond in this way today, like, God, I'm good, but, but send someone else. Okay, bro? But God wants to send you. That's how that works. You, each of us in this room, God wants to use us. And sometimes the challenge for us is we have these moments with God and we want to like kind of capture them. Maybe you've done this before where you like have this really cool moment with God. And you're like, I just want to like bottle this up and repeat it. Um, which is kind of what happens. Like sometimes like there's a picture here of St. Catherine's Monastery. I told you that, that burning bush or that bush is inside that monastery. This is the foothills of Mount Sinai in Egypt. And... Um, like, why would you build a monastery around that bush? Because you want to protect it and keep it safe, and it's holy and it's sacred, so we're going to build a holy and sacred space around this. Pretty cool, by the way. But it's just a bush. It's just a bunch of walls. Right? This room right here, pretty cool room. It's just carpet. It's just some, some plywood and some drywall and some paint. And this thing here we call an altar, it's just... Some wood and some material. I mean, it's nice. Diane Hatcher redid those a few years before us. That's great. I mean, it looks nice. I don't know, padding of some kind in there. It's great. It's just stuff. Doesn't mean much, honestly. It's just stuff. But we think when God begins to show up, we become aware of his presence. Spaces become transformed because what makes spaces holy is our awareness of the presence 
What makes spaces holy in our lives is our awareness of the presence of God. And here is the reality. There is no place we go, no thing we do, where God's presence is not there. There is nowhere you go in your life. It's why that when we choose to follow after Jesus, we come to the place where we say, every activity of my life is an act of worship. And so the question for you and I is, is what I'm doing every day a good act of worship? Because it's still an act of worship whether we think we know it's good or not. Might be bad worship. Like That might be fair. But it's still an act of worship. And so what if you and I begin to live in such a way that we saw the presence of God, his work in the world all around us? What if we lived as that kind of people? What if we saw it everywhere we went? What if in the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, we became people who had an altar in the world because we recognize wherever we go, God is there. And there's a chance we'll become more aware of his presence in our everyday activity of our lives. Because here's the reality. Just like Moses, you're probably just as likely to have a divine encounter with God in your workplace as you are anywhere else. But are we learning to live aware of his presence so we can come to know those moments? So we can help usher other people into those moments where they can become aware of God's presence that leads to the transforming of our lives. So that when we have been in captivity or enslaved, whether it be sinned or impressed in some other way, God desires to free us from that. And he desires to use you and I to do his freeing of others. It's a beautiful picture of what God desires to use his people in the world. In fact, um, one of the things we begin to recognize in our community, and I know um, Ben Carlson's here, and he's going to meet in the welcome center after the service if you want to talk to Ben or I about this. Um, the reality for us is this, that um, there's a ton of brokenness in our community. And so there's a thing called Celebrate Recovery that talks about hang-ups, habits, and addictions. And so um, I asked Ben if he just write kind of an idea of how we might talk about if you're interested in being a part of this in some way. Here's what he wrote. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered, Bible-based, 12-step, eight-principled program of recovery that is designed to help people reconnect with God and heal from past hurt and pain. Similar to other 12-step programs, Celebrate Recovery is an anonymous place to share your experience and struggles and gain hope for your future. Celebrate Recovery groups are not led by pastors, teachers, professional counselors, or paid experts. Instead, CR groups are led by men and women who are recovering from their own personal struggles while strengthening their personal relationship with God. In James 5.16, we read, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is the very essence of the work that God is doing with people in Celebrate Recovery. The ministry is one of the best expressions of what God wants the church to be. Celebrate Recovery is all about life change. People come into this ministry broken and battered, turn their lives over to Christ, leave behind the hurts, hang-ups, and habits, and discover a new purpose Here's what I believe. I don't know where you are today, but I believe God wants each of us to have holy moments. Have moments in which we encounter him. Have moments in which we are transformed. Like, I, I know this to be true. And, and I, again, piece of wood, some cloth. But there's something that happens when we go with an, an expectation that we're going to become aware of God's presence. We step out in faith and we say, God, I need to have an encounter with you. And so this morning... Um, in just a moment, Denise is going to come and play. And I, and I just want to give you opportunity. If you just feel like today, you know what, God? I just want to be in such a state where I'm more aware of your presence. 
I want to have a holy moment, a divine encounter with you. I want to learn to live as a person who has these moments with you again and again, who recognizes that there is something unique about what you do in and through me and in this world. And I want to become more aware of your presence so that I too can have sacred spaces and sacred moments and holy moments in my life. And so this morning, if maybe you just, just are hoping for an encounter with God, I'm, I'm going to pray and Denise is going to play. And, and if you just want to kneel at the altar and pray, you're welcome. No, like hidden agenda, but just that the desire to connect with God. Because we don't believe he's some far off reality. And I don't believe they're just burning bush Moses for people in the Bible, but there are, God wants to do burning bush moments for each of us. You and I. He wants us to become aware of his presence in such a way that it would transform who we are, our homes, and the community in which we live. It happens by becoming aware of his work. And so I'm going to invite you this morning, if you just stand where you are, I'm going to pray. And if you want to come and kneel and pray and encounter God in these moments, feel free to do so. Father, we come before you this morning. And we recognize you want us to have holy moments with you. Moments in which we find that you're near to us. And so this morning, if we just want to, to meet you, you make that abundantly clear. Father, we ask that somehow in these moments today we would have holy encounters with you that might change our lives. And maybe just like Moses, we feel like there are inadequate parts of us, things in our past, things that are hindering us from being what you've called us to be, but we'd recognize there's something unique that happens when we gather with you that you would invite us to be your unique people. That you would so transform us we look and sound and act like your son, Jesus. Oh, Father, maybe today we're just longing to know you. To have a sacred moment in which your spirit and your presence become so real to us that it could be no more felt than it is in this moment. And so we'd ask today that you would help us recognize that we become aware of your presence. There's no place we go where you are not already there. But you would help us, just like Moses, to have sacred space moments. Moments in which we look back on our life and we know those were pivotal moments that leave us forever changed. So Father, will you help us to foster those kind of environments, that kind of heart, that will recognize that you want to use each of us? So, Father, we ask this morning that you might help us to be the kind of people who are so transformed by the work of your Spirit that our lives do look different. That we've come to encounter your Son, Jesus, in such a way that it changes everything. And so, Lord, we do ask today that you would be at work in that. May we live as a people who have divine moments every day in which we are never the same again. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.